My name is Hazel Blackburn. I'm a member from King's Cross Youth. You're listening to the podcast from King's Cross Church in Charleston, South Carolina. We're working on our way through the entire Bible during 2023 and a sermon, and a sermon called This Door. For more information about our church or to find out resources related to the story, visit kingscross.org. Again, if you're joining us for the first time, we're walking our way through um, the Bible all year long, every Sunday, in a series that we're calling The Story. And one of the reasons that we are doing that is because we want to grow in our understanding of kind of the overarching story of the scriptures, of what it is that God is doing in human history. And so uh, I, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Nazca province in southern Peru, but it's one of the driest places on the planet. It gets annually about four millimeters of rain. Like it's dry, okay? Um, but that's actually not why Nazca is famous. Nazca is famous because they have, there are these lines on the ground. They're very shallow lines dug just a few inches into kind of the rocky surface. You can see it there. Um, and, you know, how long ago they were dug depends on who you ask, but it's at least 2,500 years ago. Everybody agrees that they're at least that old, if not older. And so, um, pretty cool. Yes? No, it's not cool. You're saying that because you think that's what I'm going to say. Like, it just kind of looks like whatever. And, and when they were kind of rediscovered in the 16th century, 1553, there was a Spanish conquistador who came across them and he reported back that he had found trail markers. And then a few years later in 1569, there was another explorer who, who wrote and said that he had discovered roads in this part of what we now call Peru. And for several hundred years, that's kind of what, what we thought that they were. And then there was a couple guys in North Carolina that figured out how to fly. Um, and you fast forward to airplanes and we're now flying over Southern Peru. And it turns out that they look more like this. And all of a sudden, somebody was like, wait, that's not a road, that's a hummingbird. <laughs> there are almost 400 Nazca lines, perfectly preserved because of the climate there. Some are geometric in shape. There are some, like this hummingbird, that are nature. They're animals in shape. There are even some human shapes. And depending on who you talk to, people argue about uh, who made them and why they're there and, you know, and when they were put there. And, but here's the reason I share them with you. For hundreds of years after they were rediscovered, we didn't really understand what they were until we could get high enough up in the air to look down on them. That's what we're trying to do in this series. I'm trying to get you high enough up in the air that you see the whole picture so that when you're down on the ground in your personal devotional time, in your grow groups or your community groups or wherever it may be, that the lines on the ground to you make more sense. And you don't mistake a hummingbird for a trail marker because you've seen it from up high. That's what we're trying to do. This morning, the lines on the ground of the Bible where we are in the first part of Exodus are some of the most famous in all of the Bible. It's the part where Charleston Heston tells Yule Brenner to let his people go. Some of you are familiar with this. Turn to Exodus 7. That's where we'll start. If you're young and that joke makes no sense, ask your parents or your grandparents. 
Last week, um, <laughs> sorry, last week we saw there was this covenant-making God who began to reveal himself to a man named Moses in the opening chapters of Exodus. This week, what we see is that same God is going to continue revealing himself through Moses to um, the broader world. And both last week and this week, and really for basically the rest of the book of Exodus, the, the kind of resounding drumbeat that we are going to hear again and again of what God is saying about himself is, I am the Lord. This is what is, is happening. He, this is who I am. This is who I am. Now, my guess is that because you're here, or even if you're listening to this online later in the week, um, you're not hostile to the idea that the God of the Bible is the true God. You may not be fully convinced. Not everybody who's here is a Christian yet. We rejoice that you're here. It's a safe place for you to ask questions. You, you, there may be some things you don't understand yet. There may be some questions that you'd love to have answered, but you're at least not hostile to the idea that the God of the Bible is the true God. But I also know that there are some of you that just struggle with some aspects of who God has shown himself to be. Or, or maybe you struggle to understand some of what it is that God does and to kind of have it make sense. And so when we get to passages like Exodus chapter 7 through 12, you struggle because you're not really sure what to do with. And maybe some of you, even if you were honest, flat out don't like passages in the Bible where God reveals himself to be a God of judgment and wrath. But that's what's happening here. And so if we read through Exodus 7 through 12, he reveals himself this way. First to all of Egypt, it says in Exodus 7, 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. And then he narrows the focus down to Egypt's leader, Pharaoh, in Exodus 8, 22. And he says to Pharaoh that these plagues are coming on Egypt so that you, Pharaoh, may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. And then he jumps over to the leader of the people of Israel, Moses, in Exodus 10, 2. And he says to Moses, I'm going to show you these signs so that you, Moses, may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I've dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I've done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. And then he goes all the way out again to the people that Moses leads, Israel as a whole. In Exodus 12, 12, he pronounces this final plague um, and he says to Israel through Moses, I am the Lord. You got two options with what to do with that. One option is you can say, that was just those people back then. That was for them, we've grown up, cute historical story. The other option is you can say, God was revealing eternal truths about himself to those people back then for all people everywhere over all time and geography. At King's Cross, we believe the second. We believe that these stories are not distant stories left in the past, but they were given in the past for 
us. Now, that is really good news for me and you because God not only reveals himself as judge in these passages, but also as savior. And so if he revealed himself then as that, we believe he is still that today. And that is good news for me and for you. Let's look at them together and we'll see in them how it is that God reveals himself as both judge and savior. We'll start with the Lord revealing himself as judge. And he does so really over two specific sets of people in chapters 7 through 11. The first is this, that God judges false gods and all who worship them. False gods and all who worship them. I don't have time to read. Well, I guess in this service I do because there's not another one, um, but I won't. Read all six chapters. <laughs> um, but if you're following along with our devotional plan, you've read these six chapters already this week. Let me just summarize for you what happens. As chapter seven opens, God tells Moses to demand of Pharaoh that Pharaoh let the people of Israel go. And he says, listen, Pharaoh is not going to do it. And when he doesn't, my response to Pharaoh is that I, God, will make myself known through signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. He says that in Exodus 7, 3. This is what I'm going to do. It's exactly what happens. And Exodus 7, 14, all the way through the end of chapter 10, records this series of nine plagues on Egypt that God sends down. The ultimate 10th plague then is promised and then fulfilled in chapters 11 and 12. If you're reading through them, they kind of just seem awful enough on their own. Like what a miserable experience to live through. But honestly, they can also seem a touch random to us because we're a little removed from when they happened historically. But they are not random. They are not random. What God is doing in this series of plagues is he is systematically taking out the Egyptian pantheon of gods, at least the major ones. So let me show you what I mean. The first plague, God turns the Nile River into blood. And it proves that he, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Moses is greater than the Egyptian God of the Nile, happy. The second plague sends millions of frogs all over Egypt and into people's houses and, and into their like storage vats. And, and then all these frogs die. And it proves that Yahweh is greater than the Egyptian God of fertility, Heket, who is represented by a frog. The third plague turns the dust of the earth into gnats. It proves that Yahweh is greater than the Egyptian god Geb, who was the god of the earth, the god of dirt and ground and, and dust. The fourth plague was this great swarm of flies. It descended on all of Egypt, but notably not on Goshen, which is where the Israelites lived. And it showed that God was greater than Kephri, who was a scarab-headed god in the Egyptian pantheon. The fifth plague killed all the livestock of the Egyptians, but again, notably, none of the Israelite livestock. And it proved that God was greater than Hathor, the mother goddess of Egypt, who was represented by a cow. The sixth plague boils that came from soot demonstrated Yahweh's supremacy over Isis, the Egyptian goddess of magic and wisdom. The seventh hail showed him supreme over Nut, the sky goddess, the eighth 
locusts came out of the desert and it demonstrated Yahweh's superiority over Set, the Egyptian god of chaos and deserts and storms. And the tenth, or the ninth rather, was darkness. Darkness, even Ra, the greatest of all the Egyptian gods, the god of the sun, even Ra was not superior to Yahweh, the God of Israel. Exodus 8.10 summarizes this point that's being driven home to Egypt and Pharaoh and Moses and Israel. And if we have ears to hear, to you and I as well, Exodus 8.10 says, there is no one like the Lord our God. Now, you might say, Chip, we don't really worship those gods anymore. Well, that, that's cute. We don't worship frogs and scarab-headed gods and like that's great, but how is that applicable for us? Might I suggest to you that a $13 billion pornography industry in the United States suggests we might just keep worshiping a goddess of fertility? Or how many of us have friends who are just too busy to go to church but they haven't missed hunting the rut in 15 years. Might we be a people who actually worship nature more than we think? We live in a city that is largely defined by beaches and water and restaurants. Could it be that we actually worship a God of wine and a God of sun more than we might think that we do? Shall we even talk about football season in the South? and cathedrals where thousands of people gather to sacrifice their money and their time and, and their emotional vulnerability. It's another sermon. There's a danger here. Because your temptation is going to be, when you get to chapters like this, to read these as historical accounts from the past. And to think of yourself by mere accident of chronology as being intellectually and emotionally and spiritually more advanced than those silly Egyptians way back then. But I'll remind you of the Ten Commandments, the first of which in Exodus 22 through 3 says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And we still are people not that much different than the Egyptians. Egyptians had gods of military, gods of hunting, God, you name it. And they found their pleasure and their security and their devotion and their willingness to sacrifice in all of these false gods. Are we arrogant enough to think that God has matured past that? that it used to upset him, but not anymore. He's not really upset anymore if we find our security in our bank account or in the White House instead of him. If our greatest affections are for our children or our favorite team instead of him. Do we think that he's just grown up some and now he's okay if you think that all religions really just get you to the same place in the end? You know, all God really cares about is, is that you're kind of sincere and, and, you know, if you just do your best, then you'll get an attaboy and eternal rewards. Where is that in the scriptures? 
Show me where God used to demand exclusive devotion of all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But now he's kind of chilled out about that. No, he has revealed himself as a God who judges every false God and all who worship them. Second, he has revealed himself to be the God who judges the nations and all who dwell in them. The nations and all who dwell in them. What God is doing in Egypt for Israel is not isolated to Egypt and Israel. It's not just about them. There's a greater thing happening. There's a greater purpose here. He says in Exodus 9, verses 14 to 16, God speaking through Moses, I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. We just talked about that. Verse 15, four, by now I could have put my hand out and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God's purpose in the plagues goes way beyond merely saving Israel from bondage. It's much bigger than merely judging Egypt for her worship of false gods. There is a worldwide purpose here. And God is doing something in Egypt for Israel so that all people across all time and geography might hear of his deeds and fear his great power and trust in his promises and rise up and raise their voices in worship of him. This is about so much more than Egypt and Israel. Just go and look for this in the Psalms, if you will. Psalm 2 says, The nations rage and the people plot in vain against the Lord's anointed. But then you start looking for how it is that God interacts with the nations. In other words, all people who are not his people. And Psalm 9 says he has rebuked them and he judges the nations. Psalm 22 and 47 say he rules over and reigns over the nations. He holds the nations in derision. Psalm 59 keeps watch on them, 66, and pours out his anger on the nations in Psalm 79. He disciplines is high above all of them and will execute vengeance on the nations. Psalm 149. Make no mistake, God judges the nations and all who dwell in them. Friends, do not fall into the trap of thinking that somehow Christianity is just a Western or an American religion. That, that it's just a, a white religion or a politically conservative religion. Don't think that Christianity is a religion for the uneducated masses or the weak-minded who just needs something to lean on to explain the big, bad, scary universe. God has been very, very, very clear that every person who has ever or will ever live across all geography and all time will one day stand before his throne of judgment. 
There is a day coming, Philippians 2 says, where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. John in his revelation at the end of the Bible in chapters 19 and 20 says that Jesus comes to judge and make war. And I know, hear me, I know that there are some of us that that don't like to think on that. If we're honest, like, we almost want to apologize for God doing that. But it's here. This is who he's revealed himself to be. And I'll be honest with you, if his self-revelation ended there, if that was all he had told us about himself, he would be righteous and just in his judgment. As sinners, all who have taken up arms against our creator, who have not trusted his promises, decided we know better than the God of the universe. If, as in the days of Noah, the way that he responded to that was to wipe us all out, he would still be holy and righteous and just in all of his judgments. But thanks be to God that he has revealed himself as more than just the great judge of the earth. He has also revealed himself as Savior. And he does it most demonstrably here in the Exodus. It will remain the reference point for God's people, the way that the people of God are going to understand God's salvation and his purposes in rescuing a sinful people. From this point all the way up until the point where Jesus walks up Golgotha's hill to die on a cross and then walks out of an empty grave. That's going to redefine it. But between Exodus 7 through 12 and that time, this is the way the people of God are going to understand his salvation because these events are going to prepare us for, they're going to point us to those events. This Exodus, this salvation of God as he pours out his grace on his chosen people is going to to cast our eyes forward to Jesus And it does so in at least two specific ways in this text, just in chapter 12. Let me show them to you. First, what we learn here is that the Lord saves by the blood of a substitute. This is the mechanism of God's salvation. It's the blood of a substitute. This 10th plague, the final plague, is promised by God in Exodus 11. Verses four through six. First he says he's going to do it, then he does it. This is the promise. Thus says the Lord, Exodus 11, four. About midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the hand mill and all of the firstborn of the cattle. And there shall be a great cry throughout the land of Egypt, such as there has never been or will ever be again. That's what's coming. But God makes a provision for Israel. In Exodus 12, 1 through 13, we won't read all of it, but here's what he says. He says, if you will take a lamb, verse 3, without blemish, Verse five, if you will live with it, 
for four days and then slaughter it. Verses five and six. If you will take its blood and, and put it on the two doorposts of your house and also the lintel in the house in which you live, that's verse seven. If you will eat its meat, and there are some provisions surrounding that in verses eight through 11. Then on the night when the Lord strikes all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, verse 12, he will pass over the houses marked in blood. Exodus 12, 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So watch this now. Someone in every house in Egypt is going to die. It is either going to be the firstborn of the house or a substitute for the firstborn of the house. Israel will be saved from the 10th plague by the blood of a substitute. This becomes so paradigm defining that as we progress our way through the story, it is going to make sense out of a lot of stuff that comes afterwards. So for example, in Leviticus 9 and 10, when the Passover feast is established as an annual ritual, it just makes sense to the people. Oh yeah, we're remembering what happened back then on the night when the Lord passed over us because of the blood of the lamb that was on our doors. When people are out listening to John the Baptist preach in John 1, 29, they made sense to them when he pointed to Jesus and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When Paul writes his letter to the church at Rome, it made sense to people when he said in Romans 5, 9, that we who believe have been justified by Christ's blood. People go, oh, that makes sense because this is the way it's been happening for thousands of years. Because this paradigm has been established that God saves by the blood of a substitute and has absolutely shaped and defined our understanding. So don't miss the takeaway for me and you. There is going to come a point where the Lord either returns or calls you home and every person who has ever lived is going to stand before him in judgment. And one of two things is going to happen. Either you will be judged according to your sins by the way that you have responded to Jesus or rejected Jesus. And you will be judged according to your sins or you will be saved by the blood of Christ who is judged in your place as your substitute. Those are the only two options. Someone is going to die. Either be you eternally or Jesus will have died as your substitute on the cross and you will be saved by the shedding of his blood. And our prayer at King's Cross is that all of you will come to a place of repentance and faith, that by God's grace, you might be saved. And if you've already come to that place, then we want to come alongside you and help you learn how to live your life in response to that salvation. But the first thing that you have to get through your head is you don't earn it. You can't earn it. You're not going to be good enough. You're not going to give enough. You're not going to serve enough. Like you're not going to pray enough. Like you're, it isn't a merit system. 
This is not your blood that's being shed. All you can do is receive the benefits of it the way that Israel did so many years ago. And here's the glorious good news. No matter what you think about your past, no matter what you think about how many times that you've come back and forth and in and out of faith and you've dipped in here, like no matter, no matter what you think about you, the glorious good news is that God saves all who believe and obey. All who believe and obey. Even you. Even that family member who seems so prodigal to you. Even that person at work who's a total pain. All who believe and obey. Just think about where we are in the story. There's no Red Sea crossing yet. There's no manna in the desert yet. There's no Ten Commandments, no temple, no priesthood yet, no sacrificial system yet. All that there's really been, if you're an Israelite living in Egypt, is slavery and then plagues. Gnats and death of livestock and like, okay, Israel was saved from that, but is it reasonable for us to think that maybe they were a little confused? Maybe even a little scared? Like what is happening with the flies and the frogs and the what? Moses and Aaron come along and they have these instructions about lambs and blood and packing everything up to leave the next morning. And, and oh, by the way, your slaves, you're going to ask your master to give you all of their jewelry. They're going to say, yes, that's really weird. Where did that come from? And like, what? And yet in Exodus 12, 50, it says all the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. What is that? That's faith. That's belief. That is the people of Israel believing the promises of God, even when it didn't make a lot of sense. Like even when they had some questions, what does the lamb have to do with, I don't understand, and these plagues, and like, what's the bigger picture, and where is it, what are we going to do after we leave here, and like, what, there's a desert on the other side, are you sure, and like, how, we don't really have an army, and like, of course there are these questions. That is believed. That's obedience. Obedience even when every single Thing maybe just didn't completely make sense. They're just learning who God is. The first thing they had to do was believe and obey. They believed the promises of God. They obeyed the word of God. But it wasn't just the Israelites. The God's, God's promises were going to extend to all who believed and obeyed. If you go back and read through chapter 12 and verse 4, there's a provision for small households. God was watching out for single people and widows and, and couples who hadn't had children. It wasn't just robust, you know, like families of a certain kind. It was for all Israel. In verse 19, there's a provision for sojourners, non-Israelites who were just passing through at the time. In verse 24 to 27, generations yet unborn are included. It wasn't even just for them. It was for the future. Verse 38 says a mixed multitude went up with them out of Egypt. That's non-Israelites or, or maybe some Hebrews had married Egyptians. And, and like 
It wasn't an ethnic thing. It wasn't about ethnic Israel. It was always about something more than Israel. In verse 43 to 49, the Passover feast is to be shared with all who are willing to join themselves with the covenant people of God. Strangers, sojourners, slaves, all who believe and obey. That is as true now as it was then. Imagine, uh, imagine if you will, two different Israelites. And one of them, he gets this news from Moses, and he's pumped. Like, he knows the history of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He knows that what other people intended for evil, God used to good through Joseph. And, and he's been tracking what's going on with this back and forth between Moses and Pharaoh on Twitter. And, and he knows like right up to the minute what it is that's happening. And, and he's been teaching his family and instructing his children. And, and he gets the word and he's excited. He's packed up and everything's ready to go. And he's just eagerly awaiting the next morning to leave because he's been waiting his whole life for the salvation of God. And can you believe that it's happening in our lifetime? And he's pumped. And then there's another Israelite. He's not so sure. I mean, it's kind of weird. Blood and lambs. and I mean, it's not the, like hail happens. That's kind of a natural event. Are we sure that God kind of did that? And we're like, where... What's the plan? Like, um, I don't really have a savings account. I'm a slave. I'm really the only thing I know how to do is build bricks. What am I going to do in the desert? And I don't really understand God saying go. And I don't know. It just seems weird. You know? I mean, for those of you who are like real, like Yahweh freaks, it might make sense. But I'm just like a regular person. I'm just trying to live my life here. Now, they both do it. That's what you do. I mean, I'll do it. That's fine. You know, I can put some blood on my door. It's okay. I'll do it. Um, but I don't know. I'm just kind of hoping it works. <laughs> Who's saved? They both slaughter the lamb. They both follow Moses' instruction. They both cover their, the doors of the houses in which they and their families live in blood. Which one of them are saved? Both. Because they're saved by the blood of the Lamb. I put it this way in the biblical truth in your notes, which I say for the very end this morning. You are saved not by the strength of your faith, but by its object. We do not have faith in faith, we have faith in Jesus. When you hear people say, well, surely all religions get you to the top of the same spiritual mountain, that's faith in faith. What saves you is that you believe in something. But don't you think that there were Egyptians who had sincere faith in Ra? Weren't there Egyptians who were pious and dedicated and served and sacrificed and worshipped, happy and nut and set and like their problem was they worshipped the wrong God? A false God. They weren't going to be saved by faith. They were going to be saved by Yahweh and the blood of the substitute that he had provided. And more than that, it wasn't just identifying the right God to believe in. There had to be some evidence of life transformation because of that belief. 
James says in chapter 2, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is dead? The demons' problem is not that they didn't know who the true God was. It's not that they didn't know that Jesus was his son. The demons' problem was they didn't obey. They believed, but it didn't change them. They had a cognitive awareness of who Yahweh was, but they rebelled against him. They didn't submit to his lordship. This is why when we say that we want you to grow in the gospel, we're not talking about just one thing. Yes, we want you to know Christ. You need to know who God is. <laughs> well, we also want you to be committed to worship services. We want you to be growing in spiritual disciplines. We want you to be a part of the community of God that is made up of his people. Like it's more than this. We, we want to preach as clearly as we can and teach as clearly as we can. Put resources in your hand as clearly as we can that show you that there is one true God and his only son, Jesus, who now has sent the Holy Spirit to open people's eyes to the beauty of the gospel, redeem them from a bondage to sin and set them free through faith in Christ. And we want to come alongside you and help you see how to live in response to that because God saves all who believe and obey. Let me just encourage you, if you're someone who has never come to a place of repentance and faith in Christ, you can do that this morning. Say, well, I got questions. So did the Israelites. I'm not 100% sure where this is gonna take me in, in five or 10 years. Neither were they. They had enough belief to take the first step of obedience. You can do that this morning. You don't have to walk an aisle. You don't have to fill out any paperwork. There's no special mantra that you have to say. It, Jesus said, if you've got the faith of a mustard seed, just enough to call out to the Lord. I acknowledge that I've tried to do things my own way and it hadn't gone real well for me. Would you save me, not based on me, but based on the blood of Christ shed on my behalf, in my place, as my substitute. He took the judgment that I deserved and, and he's paid the price that I might receive salvation. And I don't really know what that looks like, Lord, but I'm willing to learn. You could pray that right where you are. If you would pray that prayer, we would love to talk with you about it. Because being saved by God brings you into being a part of the people of God. And we'd love to just come alongside you and see what it looks like to live that out. But if you're someone who made that decision years ago or, or weeks ago, never, never get to a place where what you're most encouraged by is your own faith. Don't find your strength in you, but in the object of your faith, God the Father and His Son, Jesus and pray that the Holy Spirit will help you to stay focused on not you and your faith and your works and what you do, but on Him who saves. Thanks be to God that He will bring justice and righteousness when He judges the world and that by His grace, He has made a way that all who believe might be saved. The substitutionary life and death of His Son, Jesus. Let's pray.
Father, we stand in all of these things. I confess that sometimes in my own heart, they seem so remote, so far ago as to be almost fictional. And yet I believe that they're real. That you are revealing yourself to people then as you are now. And we can understand what you're doing now by looking at what you did then. Some of us struggle to believe. Would you give us just enough faith to take the first step of obedience? Grant by your grace the faith to believe. For others, we pray that you would guard our hearts against any of this ever getting stale, that we might not ever outgrow the gospel, but we would rejoice in it and share it. Would you help us to be a church that doesn't shy away from hard things, but presses into the glorious things and points people to the love and the salvation and the forgiveness and the newness of life that comes through faith in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. My name's Chip. I'm the lead pastor here at King's Cross Church. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope that you're growing in the gospel as we work our way through the story. Take a moment to subscribe and you'll get each week's episode automatically. May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.